I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On September 12, 1953, Linda King visited George White at his Bedford Street pad in New York. At the time, the aspiring actress thought she was there as a friend, a guest. What she didn't understand was that White didn't have friends. He had subjects, people he drugged whose names he jotted down in his diary. The CIA needed data on what LSD did to unsuspecting minds. And that's what George White provided. White and King made small talk. He fixed her his standard drink. Gin. Ice. A floater of acid. An hour passed. It wasn't long before King found herself roaming the New York City streets, her mind entering dimensions she never knew existed. White didn't chase her. He never chased anyone. His experiments lacked curiosity. He only cared about the short-term reaction. What a person did in the hours, days, weeks, or even years following their dosing didn't matter to him. When Linda King climbed to the rooftop of her apartment building that night, wondering if she should dive off the edge to quell her sudden feeling of despair, White wasn't around. He was home fast asleep. But someone was there to help. Her name was Albertine. Her friends called her Teen, or Teeny. She worked as a buyer for retail stores in New York. She was friends with King. Together, the two of them drove to Lenox Hill Hospital. King in a state of hysteria. Albertine soothing her. It's going to be okay. Relax. George did something. He gave me something. What did he give me? We'll get you checked out, okay? Come on. Come on in. At Lenox Hill, Linda couldn't articulate what had happened, only that she felt drugged. There was nothing to do but let it pass. As the hours ticked by, King kept telling anyone who would listen that a man named George White had done this to her. They needed to remember the name George White. 
81 Bedford Street, George White. Albertine stood by, passively. She wanted to help her friend, but she was growing uncomfortable with Linda's chant of George White, George White, someone find George White. Albertine knew exactly where to find George White. That's because she was married to him. Radio. This is Operation Midnight Climax, an iHeart original podcast. I'm your host, Noel Brown, and this is Chapter 4, Uncharted Waters. Part 1, Love and Marriage. Albertine and George White were married in 1951, just before White relocated to New York. It was White's third marriage, He'd been married briefly in 1933. He divorced his first wife after just a year, general incompatibility. In the 1940s, he married his second wife, Ruth. She left him while he was serving abroad. They weren't a happy couple. For all of White's bravado, for all the drug peddlers he pushed around and all the gunfights he got into, he wilted in front of Ruth. She verbally abused him, insulting his weight, calling him a slob. White would harbor a lifelong resentment over those slights. But Albertine was different. She didn't see a callous narcotics cop. She saw White as good at his job, effective, punctual. She liked punctual. She liked that his picture made it into the newspapers after big drug busts. She liked that he was well-read and well-traveled, even if he left dead bodies in his wake. And he had powerful friends, like mayoral candidate Rudolph Halley, who once promised to make White commissioner of the New York Police Department. For White, Albertine represented a step up society's ladder. She was a clothing buyer. She knew fashion. She always looked spectacular. White enjoyed taking her out and showing her off, watching men as they admired her. And sometimes... He didn't mind if they did more than that. George and Albertine were swingers, a couple who didn't mind if one or both got into bed with a third or even fourth party. But this wasn't swinging in the internet age, where partner swapping on an app would hardly be newsworthy. This was the early 1950s, when sex in America was still a taboo subject. Alfred Kinsey had just caused a stir, publishing his research into American sex lives. The first issue of Playboy was just around the corner, and while nudity was tolerated, anything beyond that would have been a problem. Porn movies were still known as stag films. If you wanted to watch people having sex, you'd have to know someone who could hang up a bedsheet and set up a 35mm projector. White was in the right place at the right time. If he'd been in middle America, he'd be run out of town. But in Greenwich Village, 
he could be more open. It was the sort of scene you could casually say you and your wife enjoyed the company of others without fear. So White developed a third identity, one apart from White, the narcotics cop, and Morgan Hall, the CIA operative. He didn't give this one a name. In a sense, it was White's real self, the one who didn't have to hide anything, his occupation, his badge, his stash of LSD. In White's Greenwich Village, he could be anyone he wanted. And what he wanted was to be more than a swinger. He wanted to be kinky. One of White's first friends in the city was John Alexander Coots. His fans knew him as John Willie, an artist and fetish photographer. Willie specialized in depictions of women trussed up in corsets and heels, imprisoned for some imagined fantasy scenario. Willie even published a magazine devoted to such content called Bazaar. Like a lot of fringe adult publications of the era, there wasn't actually any sex depicted in Bazaar. There wasn't even nudity, though authorities considered the material depraved and morally corrosive. Willie took pains to avoid anything that might raise the ire of people who could block his magazine, but it was still dangerous business. Publishers of similar material were routinely raided by authorities, their books and magazines seized and brought before congressional hearings. Reading these magazines, let alone publishing them, wasn't anything you wanted to brag about. But like minds tend to congregate. If you're John Willie, maybe you value having a friend who might be able to steer some vice cops clear of your business. If you're George White, you like the fact that John Willie is connected to a scene you want to be a part of. It wasn't long before John Willie introduced George White to a man he'd get along with. He lived just a few blocks away. His name was Gil Fox. Like White, he had an alter ego too. Several of them. Dallas Mayo was one. Paul V. Russo was another. Kimberly Kemp. Under pseudonyms, Fox wrote erotic novels with titles like A Touch of Depravity and The Trouble with Redheads. Often, there were lesbian storylines. This was, for a time, incredibly taboo. So much so that Fox didn't have a lot of source material to cull from. I would watch old movies and imagine the man and woman as two women and reimagine it as a lesbian scene. <laughs> I'd pull a whole scene from The Late Show and write it down and then put it in a box. Then I'd pull ideas from the box. But that wasn't the only place Fox got ideas. Fox and his wife, Pat, had what would today be called an ethically non-monogamous marriage. Sometimes they hopped in someone else's bed, either together or apart. Pat could provide details of her encounters with other women. Fox also got inspiration from friends like George White. You know, I like high heels a lot. A high-heeled woman is, well, there's just something about it. Do you think you could uh, write a scene with two women wearing high heels? Books of this type were often sold by bookstores run by the mafia another reason law enforcement was so interested in them. But Gill's books and John Willie's magazines 
weren't the only way White could indulge his fetishes. Albertine knew about his fascination with high heels. She watched as White filled up an entire closet with them for her use and his pleasure. According to Gill, who had intimate knowledge of White's life behind closed doors, one of White's favorite scenarios would be to take a pair of knee-high boots and carefully lace them up for Albertine. Gill's wife, Pat, also instructed Albertine on other fetishes, like spanking. When White wanted, or needed, something more extreme, he might solicit the company of a professional. Once, White invited Gill and Pat to his hotel room. When they walked in, they saw White stripped down to his underwear, tied to the bed. Near him was a dominatrix, a whip being cracked across White's ample backside. And yes, she was wearing high heels. If White had been in two loveless, relatively sexless marriages, he was making up for lost time. Greenwich Village was a path to indulging in anything he wanted. It was a playground. As sexual escapades go, it was all relatively harmless. Gill and Pat Fox regarded George and Albertine as like minds. All of them were into kink. The two couples trusted one another, though Gill and Pat didn't know George was working for the CIA. His extracurricular work wasn't disclosed to them. So, he thought nothing of it when White invited them over for drinks. Gill had been around White long enough to know he was an alcoholic. White favored gin, but wasn't picky. He regularly started his drinking in the morning and continued through the day. That detail matters. If there's one thing you want out of someone conducting an illicit CIA experiment with powerful hallucinogenic drugs, it's probably sobriety. And that wasn't something White could offer. But just how bad was White's problem? Bad enough that when he was on assignment with the Narcotics Bureau to chase a trail of heroin to Turkey, he passed out drunk in front of a suspect while undercover. The criminal went through his pockets and found his badge. White barely escaped with his life. Years later, with LSD in his possession, he was, in all likelihood, drunk on the night of November 28, 1952, when he welcomed the Foxes to his apartment. We know the date because it's an entry in White's diary. For him, it was a very special occasion. He was about to take his LSD experimentation into uncharted waters. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Part 2. Dinner Parties Gil and Pat Fox arrived at White's apartment, his real apartment, not his Morgan Hall residence, and said hello to Kai Jurgensen. Kai was a drama professor from Chapel Hill and another interesting wrinkle in White's personality. His circle of friends included murderers, informants, mayoral candidates, swingers, and apparently professors. All of them found something alluring about White. For the criminals, fraternizing with a cop felt empowering, like they were getting a peek at the other side. For more respectable members of society, it was the opposite. White felt dangerous, unpredictable. They just didn't quite understand the danger until it was too late. Welcome, everyone. Pat, you look like a million. Gil, how's the magnum opus coming? Well, come on in and meet the Jurgensons. Tina's getting dinner ready. The Foxes chatted with Kai and Joe Jurgensen while White busied himself at the bar. One thing Gil had noticed about White was that he liked mixing two pitchers of martinis at his parties. One was for himself, because again, he had some kind of vendetta against his liver. The other was for guests. The two pitchers served a different purpose, though. White wanted to keep the pitchers separate so he could add a little something extra to one of them to liven up the proceedings. Drinks for everyone. Come on. My own recipe. The Whites, Foxes, and Jurgensons began to party, drinking, 
dancing, talking about their Thanksgiving celebrations, talking about the holiday season and about New York and their plans. Then the couples piled into a car and began driving in the lower village. Gil noticed it had started snowing, and he admired the white flakes falling. After a few minutes, Gil stopped smiling. The snow was beautiful. It was maybe the most beautiful snow he had ever seen. But there was something different about it. It began to change colors. The snow was lit up, switching from blue to green to yellow. Gil looked over at his wife, Pat, who held an expression of pleasant disbelief. Then he looked at Joe Jergensen, who was holding her arms out in front of herself like a ballet dancer. Joe would later say she was admiring an ornate pair of opera gloves that had materialized out of thin air. White, having imbibed martini after martini, was looking at all of it like the Mad Hatter having a party. There was Gil, enjoying a winter snowstorm on a clear night, and Pat, quiet. Kai and Joe looked nervous. They all decided it would be a good idea to pile into a lesbian bar, but Pat and Joe began freaking out and wanted to go home. The night had come to an ignoble conclusion. What could the CIA learn from this? How two average couples responded to being dosed with LSD? Did White even report the incident to Sidney Gottlieb, or did he keep it to himself, knowing these people weren't part of the profile Gottlieb wanted? He was supposed to be dosing criminals and outcasts so he could have plausible deniability if they ever reported him. Was he doing it to win the Cold War, or was George White doing it just for fun? There were two important lessons White learned that night about consequences. For Kai and Joe Jurgensen, two educated, upper-class professionals, they were livid. They knew White had dosed them, and Joe refused to forgive White for what he deemed a harmless stunt. She felt violated. Her marriage to Kai didn't last either. The two divorced a few years later. The Foxes were another story. They, too, were angry with White, who had betrayed their trust. But the Foxes also fancied themselves liberal thinkers on the outskirts of society. Gill challenging conventions with his erotic work, and Pat, an enthusiastic partner in their swinging lifestyle. In another city, in another life, they might have gone to the police. In Greenwich Village of the 1950s, LSD was around. It was part of the lifestyle. Unlike the Jurgensons, the Foxes decided to stay in White's orbit. In fact, they did more than that. The Foxes actually helped White grow his pool of subjects. And this time, the consequences would be far more serious than Technicolor Snow. Elliot and Barbara Smythe were married in September 1950. Elliot was an employee at the F.L. Smythe Machine Company, his family's business. After Barbara gave birth to their daughter, Valerie, Elliot persuaded his beautiful new bride to relocate to Greenwich Village. He'd heard the siren call of the neighborhood's contemporary attitudes about socializing and sex. Elliot wanted to swing. Elliot had actually swung with the foxes before. He and his previous girlfriend once had a foursome with Gil and Pat, and he wanted to continue the dynamic with his new wife. But with Valerie, their daughter, 
swinging didn't seem to be in the cards. Free time was harder to come by. Gil introduced Elliot to White, and the two struck up their own friendship. Well, they were friendly. But what really made an impression on Elliot was Albertine, a vivacious woman with poise and style. White noticed. He always noticed when men admired his wife. And he made it clear that they were open to just about anything. The first time Elliot and Barbara went over to White's apartment, White showed him the shoe closet. Heels of every color, size, and variety. From basic pumps to the elaborate lace-up boots that Albertine strutted around in for White's enjoyment. This was White's toy chest. He only showed it to a select few. But he liked Elliot. And he really liked Barbara. Swinger math is always a little hard to define. There's what a couple may want, and there's what each individual wants. Elliot wanted Albertine, in or out of high heels. Albertine was attracted to Elliot. White was attracted to Barbara. But, and here's where the brakes get pumped, Barbara wasn't into White. It was always a dice roll how people perceived him. Some found his bad boy menace appealing. Others didn't. And Barbara didn't. Ordinarily, that would have been fine. With the couple still socializing, still trading stories, maybe Elliot and Albertine stealing some time together. But rejection was something White didn't like. His first wife had rejected him. His second wife had rejected him. The FBI. George White's personality, approach, and appearance is not up to FBI standards. Right. There was a pattern. Before, he hadn't been able to respond to it. But now, things were different. On January 11th, 1953, just a few weeks after the Smythes visited, George and Albertine invited Barbara over. Just Barbara. Elliot was away on a business trip, but that was okay. Barbara could come by herself. But she brought a sidekick, her baby, Valerie, who was just 20 months old. There was someone else in the apartment, too. A friend named Clarice Stein, who worked with Albertine. While she liked Albertine, she had apprehensions about White. Gil Fox had never told Elliot or Barbara about White's hobby, the one that had put him in an LSD snowstorm. He should have. In the apartment, Barbara put Valerie down and started talking with Clarice and Albertine about the apparel business. White tended bar, mixing his standard two pitchers of martinis. One for him, one for the guests. They started drinking, Barbara keeping herself to one because of the baby. It took about 15 minutes before the laughing started. Something was funny. Barbara, Clarice, and Albertine began laughing hysterically, uncontrollably, like nitrous oxide was being pumped into the room. Their drinks sloshed over the rim of the glass. From her bassinet, Valerie watched as her mother seemed to be in good spirits. But remember what the chemist Albert Hoffman said about his discovery, about LSD and about the dangers it posed when it was outside of a highly controlled environment. The danger of a psychotic reaction is especially great if LSD is given to someone without his or her knowledge. 
the conditions for the positive outcome of an LSD experiment reside in the milieu of the experiment, the persons present, their appearance, their traits. Barbara, you don't look so good. You feeling okay? The acoustic milieu is equally significant. Even harmless noises can turn to torment. LSD tends to intensify the actual psychic state. A feeling of happiness can be heightened to bliss. A depression can deepen to despair. It's dangerous to take LSD in a disturbed, unhappy frame of mind or in a state of fear. The probability that the experiment will end in a psychic breakdown is then quite high. Before Barbara Smythe could say more, there was a knock at the door. It was Francine Kramer, one of Albertine's co-workers. She seemed to be an intrusion of reality. Francine watched as both Barbara and Clarice gathered their things, Barbara scooping up Valerie, and went out into the night. Out into an uncontrolled environment. Out to explore a world bursting with their fears. The fear of being a new mother, the amplified feelings of despair that can accompany the arrival of a living being you're now responsible for. All of it naked. Present. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. 
they starved us, they beat us, they burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us, so we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Part three, Untouchable. Clarice and Barbara went their separate ways. Clarice arrived home and, still in a state of terror, picked up her telephone and called White, demanding to know what he had done to her. Yeah? George. George, I'm so scared. What's happening? Clarice, you know what time it is? George, should I see a doctor? You should stop calling. Go to sleep. George? George? Clarice called again and again. She begged him to tell her what he had given her so she could get something to counteract it. Each time, White hung up. He had gotten whatever information he wanted out of his experiment. He had no interest in consoling her. In his diary, he wrote just four chilling words. Clarice, got the horrors? Barbara had made it home with Valerie safely. She didn't call White. She didn't even tell Elliot what had happened. He had no idea that night would change the course of both of their lives. Barbara grew distant. She was prone to increasing bouts of depression. If it had started as something expected, the kind of bleak moods new mothers sometimes experience, it had blossomed into something far more serious. Elliot, I need to tell you something and I need you to promise to believe me. I think the Mafia is after me. The encroaching paranoia put a strain on their marriage. Barbara withdrew more and more, fearing her phones were tapped. By 1958, she agreed it was best to be admitted to Stony Lodge Hospital, where she was diagnosed as a chronic paranoid with depression. She expressed fears Elliot was trying to kill her. Her marriage didn't survive the stay. She and Elliot soon divorced, with Valerie being placed with Elliot's parents. A woman with a new child, with a happy home life, was, by 1962, receiving electroshock therapy. Over time, LSD researchers, reputable ones, would reinforce the idea that people receiving doses unknowingly were at the greatest risk for adverse reactions. They couldn't ease their minds by reassuring themselves it was a drug-induced episode, and only temporary. Traumatic flashbacks could persist for years, well beyond the initial window of hallucinations. It would be a long, 
long time before Elliot found out what happened at George White's apartment that night in 1953. By that time, Barbara would be dead, having spent the remaining two decades of her life in institutions. We know George White had little compassion for his subjects. Like so many others, he'd let Barbara fend for herself. But what about Albertine? She had driven Linda King to the hospital. Did she share White's apathy? Did she really not care that her friends were being irreparably damaged by his actions? In 2002, journalist Douglas Valentine interviewed Albertine. It was Valentine who first revealed the connection between Gil Fox and George White in his 2002 series for Counterpunch.org. Albertine was, Valentine wrote, a sweet woman, measured in her responses, professing to have little knowledge of White's CIA activities. But when Valentine mentioned Barbara Smythe, she turned. She began swearing and yelling. Valentine wrote that Albertine, quote, descended into a string of expletives that would have embarrassed a sailor. Her tirade left his writer with the firm impression that she was thoroughly capable of having been White's accomplice in his dirty work. Albertine refused to discuss it further. Like George White had done with Clarice Stein, she simply hung up. She didn't want to hear any more. In all of these cases, each person who trusted George White had a vastly different reaction to his dosing them. Barbara Smythe withdrew, succumbing to the paranoia. Clarice Stein phoned White incessantly until she realized his approach was careless and calculating. She eventually drifted back into the White's social circle. She was, after all, co-workers with Albertine. Perhaps it was easier to let the whole experience go than to create problems at her job. The Jurgensons avoided him entirely, the appeal of his dangerous side having grown too frightening. The Foxes accepted it as a condition of their friendship with White. For a man who enforced morality, it's puzzling to consider White's own version of it and how callous he could be, even to friends. Though we do know something about his ethics, thanks to this passage from his unpublished autobiography. Morality. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, that's just a word that describes a current fashion of conduct. The Navajo Indians regarded it as immoral for old people to be permitted to live longer than they were able to take care of themselves. We are moral, so we let our oldsters rust and rot away in dreary poorhouses or pensioners' hovel-type hotels. Our morality sees nothing really wrong with evictions, civil murder, capital punishment, anti-birth control laws that spawn poverty, loan sharks and hidden charge operators, police brutality, millionaire politicians, and the nuclear bomb. So why should I get bugged about the possibility that I might be immoral in someone's daffy book merely because once upon a time, I permitted a generation of Adams to tarry in my Eden? Where was Sidney Gottlieb in all of this? For an operation that CIA Director Alan Dulles considered to be paramount in securing the future of the United States, 
was anyone aware of White's sadistic streak, that he was extending his psychedelic outreach to include young mothers, that he was consumed by sex and alcohol. Sidney Gottlieb knew all about it. As White continued to give him reports, the two grew closer. When White took up leatherworking as a hobby, he made Gottlieb a belt for his birthday. And he had another gift for Gottlieb the next time he was in New York. On at least one occasion, with White passed out drunk, Gottlieb and Albertine went into the next room, shut the door, and enjoyed the freedom Greenwich Village could bring. In Eden, there was Linda King, the actress who visited White and wound up on the rooftop of an apartment complex, contemplating a step forward. Albertine drove her to the hospital, where she insisted to everyone that George White had done this to her. She wasn't scared of White. She wanted people to know what happened. A police officer from the New York Police Department took her statement. So did a representative from the department's mental health unit. You can imagine they raced over to George White's apartment, knocked on his door, demanded answers. Toxicology reports would demonstrate Linda King had been administered LSD. If they dug deeper, Barbara Smythe, Clarice Stein, Kai and Joe Jurgensen, and countless others could corroborate King's story, that George White was on a psychedelic rampage. That's what could have and should have happened. But Linda King didn't take into account one thing, that the authorities had already been contacted by the CIA. And the message was simple. If anyone should come in with a complaint about George White, it should be torn up and forgotten. He was on a state-sanctioned mission. Whatever happened to Linda King wasn't the business of the New York Police Department. Decades later, a CIA official would try to find Linda King's records at Lenox Hill Hospital. They didn't exist. George White was something worse than dangerous. He was untouchable. The only thing that could come between White and the CIA's mission to master mind control was when the game finally went too far. It would take a fall from a 10th story window for George White's fantasy life to finally shatter and for the snake to no longer be in charge of Eden. Operation Midnight Climax is hosted by Noel Brown. This show is written by Jake Rosen. Editing, sound design, and mixing by Ernie Indradat and Natasha Jacobs. Original music by Aaron Kaufman. Research and fact-checking by Austin Thompson and Marisa Brown. Show logo by Lucy Quintanilla. Special thanks to Spencer Gibson, David Krumholtz, Vanessa Krumholtz, Ted Ramey, and Jason Thompson. Julian Weller is our supervising producer. Our executive producers are Jason English and Mangesh Hatikater. See you next week. Ah. 
I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.